Hi, my name's Hannah. I'm one of the staff here at Wollongong Baptist Church. I work in the office doing admin. Today, I'm going to be reading the Bible passage, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you who are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. G'day everyone, my name's Ken, and it's my privilege to lead us today in thinking about communion as worship. In many ways, Communion is another practice or habit of grace similar to those we've looked at so far, except that most of the things we've looked at are routinely done without any accompanying explanation. We say, let's pray, and we go ahead and do it. But celebrating communion each month, there are always reasons given to explain what we are doing and why. Each time a, a slightly different angle is taken, but the activity of communion and its explanation go hand in hand. We, we don't ever have one without the other. And so when we initially planned this series, today was going to be an expansion upon what we normally do, going into more detail of why we do what we do. And then, but sadly, it's not going to lead into us immediately eating and drinking together with clearer understanding. Now, this will possibly bring about a sense of loss, the feeling of a missed opportunity to apply what we're thinking about in the most obvious way. The sermon will be followed instead by a discussion in which we will cover why we have made that decision in more detail. 
So with those things recognised up front, let's pray, asking for God's help as we do this. Lord God, we do thank you that you are a God who's revealed yourself to us, uh, that you haven't left us to guess at how we should worship you, but you've given us ways and means, explanations. And so as we spend some time today thinking about communion, may you grow our understanding so that we would do this in a way uh, that truly exalts you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Australia's relationship with food is a complicated one. Apart from Vegemite sandwiches and the hotly disputed pavlova, there's probably very little, if anything, that we could even attempt to claim as uniquely Australian. And yet, though many of the meals that we love may not have originated in Australia, there's a widespread appreciation of those who can do a better job at cooking than we can. It's not just the modern trend of large plate, small portion restaurants or MasterChef type TV shows. There, there have always been awards for best scone at the show, a carefully guarded family recipe handed down through the generations or, or cookbooks by famous chefs. This appreciation of what's been labelled as foodie culture exists and is perhaps even growing. But at the same time, there remains in practice a very well-accepted, laid-back attitude to food that is typically Aussie, scrounging up something easy from leftovers, sandwiches for lunch and takeaway meals. It seems to be a contradiction, but I know people that eat their microwaved frozen meals while watching MasterChef. For Aussies, food can be fancy or functional, sometimes both at the same time. Food provides a need, satisfies a craving within us. But at times, it can be much more than just nutrients and calories. We all know that food can be symbolic. We give chocolates as a gift, have a birthday cake to celebrate. When you invite someone out on a date, depending on whether you suggest coffee or dinner, it communicates a different message. And even if we have only a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament sacrifices, we all know that food can even have significant religious meaning. Because communion involves food, it too can be impacted by all of these things. They can be imported consciously or unconsciously as we eat and drink. Communion is something that we do at WBC normally on a monthly basis. But what is it and how is it worship? Now, perhaps the question you really want answered is, what is the right way to do communion? Why don't we do communion like we used to when I was a child or the way they did it at my previous church? Maybe the fact that COVID restrictions have resulted in us not sharing communion for three months now has heightened your desire to eat and drink and, and today you just want to get on with it. I'm not going to attempt to answer every question or to look at every possible view. But instead, we're going to approach this from the angle of how can communion best express worship of God? How does communion exalt God, lift him up, give him the honour that he is due? How we're going to do that is to look really briefly at communion's origin and then focus on four directions that communion helps us to look in. So yes, a, a five-point sermon. And just a quick word regarding the Bible references you'll see on the screen. In, in most cases, there are other verses that make the same point, and I've picked just one as an example. So firstly, to the origin of communion. Point one, where did communion come from and what is it? 
As all the accounts make clear, Jesus himself directly established communion. This leads to communion, along with baptism, sometimes being labelled as an ordinance, emphasising that Jesus himself gave the instructions for us to do this. If we don't celebrate communion, it is in some sense a more direct disobedience of Jesus than other actions or omissions would be. Jesus' role as the initiator of communion, also explains why the Lord's Supper is its other most commonly used title in Protestant circles. What we do is and must directly and unashamedly focus on Jesus our Lord. If Jesus somehow gets moved from the spotlight by how we do it or or what is said, then it shows that we are doing something terribly wrong. An example from church history is the words hocus-pocus spoken by a magician. They come from the Latin mass when the priest proclaimed Jesus' words, this is my body, hoc est corpus meum, to a congregation that didn't speak Latin. Together with the Catholic teaching that the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus, people not surprisingly thought that something magical was taking place. The language used was a barrier that led to a misunderstanding and and so should have been a warning that something was profoundly wrong in how they were doing communion. The original setting in which Jesus gave his instructions was a meal celebrating the Passover. The Passover meal was the God-given way of remembering God's saving of his people from slavery in Egypt. It was a meal with a meaning. The obvious variation from Passover is that communion has become a ritual or, or token meal rather than a full meal. And in most cases, communion is celebrated more than once a year. I certainly wouldn't want to survive too long on the portion sizes we receive in communion. So so maybe a meal is not the right description. Should we call it a, a ritual then instead? All rituals face the danger of becoming merely habitual actions done frequently without much thought. People can go through the motions, take a a small piece of bread and eat it, take take a little cup of juice and drink it mindless repetition that potentially achieves nothing. But communion must be more than that. Our our understanding is that Jesus gave us communion for good reasons. Perhaps like a song that is memorable in a way that a sermon can't be or or how fasting expresses physically our, our thoughts and emotions. A ritual involving eating and drinking reinforces or expresses a truth in a unique way. You can hear a sermon on Jesus' death watch a movie reenacting it, spend time meditating on it, but none of those will have the same impact on us that Jesus intended by getting us to eat and drink. Now, perhaps it's because communion engages all of our senses. We hear the explanation, we see the bread and juice, we we feel the bread in our hands, smell it and, and taste it. Other activities like reading or listening only engage one or two of the senses. Whatever the reason. Jesus knew what would communicate most effectively. And so again, rather than an obligation, we need to see communion as an opportunity, an important and unique means that Jesus gave us to understand and respond to him in worship. Which leads into these four directions that communion can help us to reflect on. Point two, communion is given for us to look backwards in time. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 25 say, 
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. When explaining why they are to eat bread and drink wine, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Communion is a a commemoration looking back in time to what was done at a point in history past. As the Passover looked back in time, remembering God's rescue of his people from Egypt, so communion looks back in time, remembering when Jesus rescued his people from sin. This focus on the past gives rise to yet another name that is used by some, the Eucharist, coming from the Greek word meaning thanks. Left to our own imagining, we might come up with all manner of painful or costly ways of attempting to respond to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. But Jesus says, eat and drink in thankfulness. That's the way I want you to remember what I did, the, the attitude I want you to prioritise. Like Anzac Day does, we remember a terrible event that results in great things for us. And and so I think we sometimes hesitate to use the word celebrate to describe communion. While freedom is a great outcome, the death it costs saddens us, which rightly leads to an appropriate attitude of reverence, a, a seriousness as we do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 27 to 28 give a, a strong warning against taking part casually. Communion is a meal that only those who have put their trust in Jesus should take part in. Some suggest that this also means that a a certain form must be used, a a special table, a a solemn silence, a a particular hymn sung beforehand. And while I believe the attitude is right, we have to be careful that we don't confuse what we like with what must be or, or impose something on others just because it's been helpful to us. Sometimes form and function don't work the same in new situations. Moses was told by God to take his shoes off on Mount Sinai, and yet if I led communion barefoot, it is very unlikely to communicate the specialness of what is taking place. And likewise, though it was my childhood experience, there there is no biblical demand to, to have all of the elders or deacons sit behind a table inscribed with the words, this do in remembrance of me. It is a way of showing respect, but it's not the only way, perhaps not even the best way in every situation. The even more important thing than the method is the meaning. Jesus makes explicit that the bread is his body. As he offered the wine, he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. While his statements have been understood literally, it seems best to understand them as symbols that that remind us of what Jesus did for us. His his body was broken, his, his blood shed to establish a new covenant to forgive our sins. As we eat and drink, we are to remember that Jesus died for us. That is what it took to achieve our forgiveness. And he has done it. He was willing to pay such a high price. When Jesus took something as special as Passover and said, this is the way to remember my body given for you, my blood of the new covenant, it was a huge statement about the significance of what he was about to do. 
And yet while Passover was an annual looking back to their rescue from Egypt, it had always anticipated a greater rescue that was fulfilled in Jesus' death, the saving act that all other saving acts had been signposted towards, which, which changes the direction of our focus. And so point three, communion helps us to look forwards in time. No sooner had Jesus told his disciples to eat and drink for the purpose of remembering that he also tells them to eat and drink in anticipation. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we look to the past in thankfulness, we must also look to the future with excitement. Communion has an inbuilt use-by date. We are encouraged to eat and drink regularly. This verse indicates there is no mandated frequency as to how often we must do this. But each and every time we do communion, we not only think of what Jesus did in the past, we proclaim right now Jesus' death until he comes. Implicit in that statement is the fact that Jesus has not only died, but risen and ascended. And, and so by doing communion, we're saying to others that Jesus is coming back one day. Communion is reflective, but it is also at the same time prophetic. We mustn't let it have a purely inward contemplative purpose. We are saying to others by eating and drinking that we know how this story ends. The Gospels point to this same truth in a slightly different way. Matthew chapter 26 uh, verse 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Taken together with many other statements, this idea of a banquet or a feast is often used to, to capture in picture the joyous celebration at the end of times. Jesus says that the last supper he ate, past tense, which we remember as the Lord's Supper, present action, will become the eternal supper, future experience. Communion is like a mini meal, pointing to a much greater meal that will last forever. And so commemoration is an inadequate term on its own. Communion is also a celebration, a physical expression of the hope we have, a display of our confidence in Jesus' promise, a bubbling over of the joy that will be fully ours when we eat and drink together face to face with the Lord Jesus. But shifting the focus again from when, past or present, point four, communion helps us to look upward towards God. As prayer is a practical expression of our dependence upon God, likewise, communion is another means of expressing our complete dependence on God, specifically for our forgiveness. John's Gospel is unique amongst the four in that it doesn't record the Last Supper and, and Jesus' instructions to do this. And yet the record of his teaching in John chapter 6 is closely related and gives us further insight into why communion is such a good way to worship. Jesus takes yet another well-known provision from God, the manna in the wilderness, and claims that he is the true bread. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Bread was the staple food for Israel. If you didn't have bread, you couldn't live, literally. And as we eat and drink the symbols representing Jesus, we acknowledge 
that he is the source of our life. Without Jesus, we don't have life. As sinners, there was absolutely nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Nothing we could offer to pay for what we had done wrong. We all eat and all drink because we are all equally needy. God has provided in Jesus the one who paid the price for our sin. And so finally, point five, communion helps us to look horizontally to one another. I think this is possibly the most overlooked aspect of communion and and ironically is built into the very title that we most often use. Communion is an English translation of the Greek word koinonia, often also translated as fellowship. This ritual eating or meal is done together with others. While there is an introspective, personal, between me and God focus to communion, it is also by nature something that we must do with others. There's no such thing as solo communion. How we do it does impact others, even if those others are not present. And so we can't determine what we will do simply by asking what will benefit me most. Lack of consideration of one another was the primary reason Paul wrote what he did about communion in 1 Corinthians. The problem at Corinth was that some were using this God-given meal to indulge their own desires. While they were meeting together and possibly even saying the right words and prayers, it wasn't acceptable worship of God. While done externally for God, the actual focus was on themselves. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 21 tells us that that some amongst the church were going ahead with private suppers. They were overindulging to the point of getting drunk while, while others missed out altogether. And the worst part, according to Paul, was not drunkenness. It was the fact that some had missed out. Jesus wasn't being honoured or or exalted because people were being selfish. In recognition of this, it is our tradition to eat the bread as it comes around, but, but then to hold on to the cup until everyone has received one and then we drink together as a symbol of our unity. And it can be a meaningful, symbolic action. But there remains a danger that I can have the right outer actions and still have the wrong inner heart, that I can say the right words, do things in a particular way, and yet my motivation is completely inappropriate. If communion ever becomes all about me and the spiritual benefit it can be to me, I'm missing an essential component that must be there. Communion should be about how this benefits us. How does this meal show my connectedness with people that I wouldn't otherwise have anything to do with? How am I restricting myself to serve others, to put them first? And so returning to verses 28 and 29 again, this requirement to examine oneself before taking communion is not about being sinless. It is understanding the full significance of what we are doing, including that we are doing it together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just a ritual is a common response given to downplay the significance of certain actions. If you consider a wedding, a a white dress, promises made, rings exchanged, the statement, you may now kiss the bride. Some conclude they're all just rituals. And I get it. If the bride wore a red gown rather than a, a white or ivory one, would it make the vows any less effective? Of course not. But there is potential value in the traditions and symbols of many aspects in the wedding ceremony. They don't automatically have meaning, 
but they can. Though I've cut the cake at more birthdays than I care to remember, cutting the wedding cake with my bride was a unique ritual that said, we're celebrating something new together. Though my wedding ring doesn't have the power to prevent unfaithfulness, it is a silent symbol saying to myself and anyone who sees it that I am committed to another. It's a ritual, a tradition, a symbol, but I would argue it's not just a ritual. And communion has the potential to be nothing more than a ritual or it can be an incredibly powerful symbol. Understood and celebrated rightly, communion can help us to remember, to anticipate, to recognise our dependence upon God and to recognise that what Jesus did, he did for his bride, the church, to look backwards and forwards, upwards and around. I hope that as we abstain from taking communion and when we do it again, it may serve the many purposes for which Jesus gave it to us, that it will be a well-used way to worship him. Let's pray. Lord God, as our creator, we thank you that you know us and you know what will work best for us. And so we thank you for the gift of communion, a meal, a ritual, a way of celebrating, commemorating, uh, rejoicing in what you've done on our behalf, a way of looking forward uh, with expectation of the incredible uh, future that we have before us, but also a practical way of recognising that this is not just done for us, it's done for a group that I'm a part of. Lord, thank you for this meal, uh, this way of reflecting, but we pray that we would be able to use it well so that it would be appropriate worship that exalts you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just discussed the habit of grace uh, of communion as Ken's unpacked God's words for us. And we're now going to think a little bit further about this topic because you'll be aware that we sent out an e-news to everyone at WBC on Friday explaining why the pastors and elders had taken the decision that we wouldn't practice communion um, over these past three months. And so we wanted to uh, think through that a bit further with you. And so I'm going to ask a couple of questions now of Ken and Mark as we explore that further. So firstly, Ken, um, how did the pastors and elders come to this decision? What was the process to reach this point? Yeah, it, it wasn't just an immediate reaction. Uh, we stopped very quickly to be thinking about what we would include in our services online, uh, what things needed to remain, what things potentially shouldn't be there at this point in time because we were meeting in a different format. Um, and so communion was discussed very early on. Uh, we didn't make an immediate decision uh, over a number of elders' meetings. We were talking about it, thinking about it, praying about it, reading all the articles that are online, uh, stopping to take time to reflect on it all. Uh, and so over a period of weeks, we kind of made the decision, okay, let's not do it while we think about it, uh, but then came to the firmer conclusion that uh, this, this aspect of needing to be together with others uh, means that it's probably best at this stage not to do it in this online format. So while we've found that yeah, this fellowship aspect is hard to um, involve or create in this online setting, um, it's, a, I guess, a cautious choice that we've made. But, uh, Mark, why not just go forward? Some might pragmatically say, well, there's still value in practising communion anyway at this time. Uh, why have we um, made this decision? Yeah. Um, 
this was something that we wrestled with uh, for many weeks, uh, recognising that uh, if we were to do communion online through the service or in a Zoom meeting afterwards or even to ask our home groups to practice it themselves, we pretty quickly realised that su doing something like that would be less than ideal. The ideal uh, pattern that Ken has shown us from Scripture with those four kind of dimensions to it, um, there was just no way of meaningfully and completely enacting that horizontal fellowship with the whole body kind of dimension, which communion uh, ideally has. And so we wrestled, well, yes, it might be less than ideal, but can we still go ahead with it anyway? Might there be some value in it? Could it be redeemed in some way and recognise it's incomplete, but we'll do it anyway? And that was a real kind of back and forth process mm -hmm. for us and for the elders as well as we thought about it. Um, but I think the conclusion that we came to was that we wouldn't practice communion in a way that was less than ideal uh, because the, the question really is whether those four different elements, the four directions of communion, whether they're essential or whether they're incidental to, to the actual practice itself. Can you have the practice if you don't have those four sort of elements to it? And I think the conclusion we've come to is that actually the, the horizontal fellowship with the whole body aspect is essential and so if you do it without incorporating that element it's it's actually not communion that you're practicing paul seems to be really going to lengths to stress to the corinthians in chapter 10 and 11 of 1 corinthians that the the whole body needs to be participating in this together that it would be inappropriate for a subset of the whole body to go ahead and do their own thing uh, without including the whole body together so I'll give you a couple of examples uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse uh, 33, uh, Paul says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, talking to the whole church, you should all eat together. There's no kind of allowance for a, a subset, a minority of the church, to practice this by themselves. Uh, similarly, in chapter 10, verse 17, uh, Paul reflects on the, the actual elements of the meal, the bread and the juice. And he says uh, in verse 17, Because there is one loaf... We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So if the whole are not sharing the food together, then there just simply isn't that reenactment of the unity that Jesus has brought for us. And so for us, that was kind of, at the end of the day, a non-negotiable mm. part of the meal. We felt like the only kind of reasonable thing to do is to just wait until we can honour that aspect of the meal together. Mm. Now, perhaps uh, some of you will feel quite comfortable with that decision we've reached, others perhaps less so. We want to encourage ongoing dialogue. We're happy to chat further, so if you've got questions, then please talk to one of the pastors or elders. We've also got our podcast, which, of course, this week we'll be looking at the topic of communion, so you could send in a question that Ken will address in the podcast. And let me say, too, that um, we are so looking forward to being able to have communion together again as... Uh, Ken said at the end of his sermon, we really are anticipating that time where we will be back. We're all acknowledging that restrictions are starting to ease. So please be patient and wait till we can gather together and we will share communion that first week that we can be back together. And we so look forward to being together and doing that. Uh, thank you for sharing this discussion and thinking with us.